many babies in the womb, they're not appropriately screened for heart defects by ultrasound. So as a result, kids would be born, they'd look fine, they'd go home and they'd actually die. So I wrote an article about this when I was writing for the New York Times, and I wrote about pulse oximetry, which is simply checking the oxygen level on babies before they go home. And what happened was there was a woman who read that article whose baby had just been born with a similar condition. And she said, look, you're writing about this. Why don't you do something about it? And this started a two-year collaboration where we worked together. And long story short, over that period of time, actually added pulse oximetry screening to the federal newborn screening program. And now all 50 states require it. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Passionate about the intersection of policy and medicine, Darshak Sanghavi's career has taken him from pediatric cardiology to the Obama administration to his current role as chief medical officer of Optum Labs, always seeking to define and improve on one thing in particular, the outcomes that matter most. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shewitz. And I'm Lisa Soonan. And today's episode is sponsored by Rockpoint. Rockpoint, innovators in medical education and patient engagement. To learn more, go to www.rockpoint, with an E, R-O-C-K-P-O-I-N-T-E.com. So, David, how are yeah, you? I'm doing good, Lisa. It's, um, so one topic I was thinking about today, our guest today is a, a highly regarded uh, author, as I'm sure we'll, we'll get into, wrote a, a very well-known book called Map of the Child. Mm-hmm. Thinking about books, we talk about physician authors, but more generally, are there sort of books, and of course, in addition to Map of the Child, that uh, you might recommend for our readers? Yeah, you know, I'm kind of, uh, listeners? as you may know, a bit of a space freak. Um, I, my favorite gig is the one I do with with NASA and Baylor. That's so and, cool. Uh, and in fact, you should listen to Dorit Donaville's earlier Tectonic podcast to learn more about that. But my book, my favorite book of the year that I read was by Robert Curson called Rocket Man, uh, about the first you know. You like shot. that author? I do. He's a great author. He wrote Shadow Divers, which is probably my all time favorite book. That's a great recommendation. Yeah. So I, I like that one. What about you? You know, I. First, I got around to a book that I was sure I read several years ago, um, but then I, maybe I reread it or read it more carefully. It was just, uh, like everyone else, blown away by Sid Mukherjee's. Mm. Um, you know, we trained together, um, uh, and, you know, it's... So he, I could, you know, I could always hear his voice in it, and it was just a magnificent book. His Emperor of All Maladies. This yeah. is an incredible book. He was Two the are, speaker at my daughter's uh, graduation from USC. He wrote about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, uh, and you know, he's someone who just, um, I feel like he was born to be sort of the public intellectual he's become, and he really is just like as decent and as smart as he comes across. So I thought that was fantastic. Two other books that I've read, that I've recently read, which I thought were terrific, um, are one is uh, the Tyranny of Metrics. Um, which is a really interesting book, sort of critiquing the over-metricization of society. Um, I'm kind of halfway through now this book called Lab Rats um, by the guy who wrote Disrupted, Dan Lyons. Um, and then um, the uh, I also really enjoyed The Undoing Project. Oh, yeah. Yeah, recommend yeah that was a great book. So um, fantastic. So um, speaking of authors, we are pleased to welcome to the program today Darshak who Lisa and I are both huge fans of. I've actually known him for something like two decades, and it's been great, though not remotely surprising, to watch his brilliant career evolve the way it has. So uh, there's so much meaty stuff to get into today, Darshak, but let's start where all proper origin stories begin, with New Jersey. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> <Checks> it. <laughs> so Darshak, it turns out, went to the same high school as our previous guest, Atul Butte, so, Darshak, tell us all about growing up in the Garden State, <laughs> as well as how you wound up at the Jersey equivalent of math camp, the governor's school. Well, 
Well, <laughs> I never to thought die. about it that way. But I, I, you know, what, what was interesting about Southern New Jersey was so my parents uh, emigrated to the United States in 1969 uh, from India. Both of them were, uh, are originally from the Mumbai, Gujarat area. And my mom was actually pregnant with me when they came over. They were sort of fleeing a not great family situation. Huh. And one of the ways they could come over is by my dad got this fellowship to study and get a master's at the, at the University of Missouri. So they'd actually gone out there originally. Um, and then, you know, because it was seen as prestigious to have a, a child who went to the U.S., they sort of had this exit plan to get out of what was a fairly kind of challenging family situation, particularly for my mother, and they moved to New York. Uh, and that's where I was born. And then shortly after that, you know, they wanted to find uh, this prototypical American suburb, and they settled in southern New Jersey. And I think the reason they did is there was an, you know, there were these sort of small founder communities of recent immigrants from India, very huh. different than sort of what things are like now. So I think that's sort of how they ended up in the Cherry Hill, New Jersey area. <laughs> and I think it's the same types of situation, you know, same sort of attractiveness that brought probably a tools family and, and several others as well. I grew up in Princeton, by the way, so I feel you. Wait a, minute, that, wait a minute, you don't feel them at all. The Princeton is the place for people from New Jersey who don't want to be from New Jersey. Right. <laughs> Princeton has nothing to do with the rest of New Jersey. You're a total hypocrite, Lisa. Um, so wait, wait, wait a minute. And you got to tell us about this governor's school thing. We're not going to let yeah. you off the hook. Lisa's so jealous. Yeah, right? <laughs> so one of, the, one of the things, as you know, is that if you're a first-generation Asian-American immigrant, you're sort of genetically predisposed towards a career in medicine. I know, like, you know, I said, hey, you know, I might be interested in, in playing music or, or even becoming a lawyer or going to politics. My parents said, oh, that's really great. You can do all of that after you go to medical school. <laughs> Very, so, but having said that, so there was a, one of the really kind of cool programs um, uh, that was available, and also because uh, in addition to being science-oriented, many first-generation Asian Americans, particularly at that time, were very thrifty, meaning they would never spend money on anything. Um, and so that one of the programs that they had in the state was this thing called the Governor School. So it was uh, sponsored by the, the state. You could apply, and there'd be 100 students every year that were accepted. I mean, it's essentially a total nerd camp. But I went to the Governor School in Sciences uh, in 1987, and it, it's pretty amazing, you know, at, at the time. One of the guys from my class ended up winning the Nobel Prize in Physics, and, uh, you know, as you heard, a, t a tool had, had, had some exposure there as well. And, it, you know, it, it's amazing how, you know, 30-odd years later, I still talk to several of them. And one of them, uh, actually, uh, I trained with again in, uh, when I was at Children's Hospital in Boston. So we kind of keep running into each other. And yet all of these people managed to, to find marriages and have real relationships with people despite yes. their nerd <laughs> roots. It's always amazing. <laughs> all right. So this is where, okay, so this is where we drop in. The, included. <laughs> this is where we drop in the quote from um, uh, Revenge of the Nerds. Oh, God, you are wonderful. Thanks. Are all nerds as good as you? Yes. How come? Because all jocks think about is sports. All we ever think about is sex. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it cracks up because my dad, who's also a self-professed nerd, He'd always used to say, the nerds shall inherit the earth. So I guess there's something to it. <laughs> so um, so completely changing topics um, from nerds. You wound up at Harvard. In a year, In a year with at least one really dodgy classmate, as I understand it. Um, <laughs> how, did you <laughs> how did you decide to do both um, biology and yeah. U.S. So, politics? So I think that... Um, that 
this is this is sort of how I would rebel at that time, which is okay. I, I can kind of tell I'm going to go into medicine. I, I you know obviously I love the field, but the way I would do it is by asking for what they call the special concentration, which is you have to go through this whole process. And I would somehow fold in um, politics, which I had always been fascinated by. And particularly, again, going back to the immigrant story, it sort of seemed like this inaccessible world where it just seems so difficult to imagine that that uh, we could play a part in it. Remember, at the time, even though it was the the 80s when I was in high school around this time, there was a reasonable amount of, of uh, racism. You know, I put up with my fair share in, uh, in high school and other places. Well, thank God it's totally gone <laughs> but, now. Uh, but it just <laughs> seems like, you know, if we were going to change the world, ultimately that's where we'd have to get involved in some way. And so I think that it, 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 that was my way of, maybe it was a signal that that's where my interest would someday lie. But uh, even back then, by putting together this special concentration, I did get some exposure to politics. I to cross-register for a class at the Kennedy School, which is the School of Government. And, and, uh, and then that all kind of lay fallow when I was in med school. And then who knew at the time that I was planting the seeds of what my, where my career would go in the future. But, but that's how it turned out. Yeah, you're like such a slacker because I only ever did politics. I didn't yeah. do a <laughs> medical degree at the same time. <laughs> so then um, in terms of self-punishing, it sounds like you did go to yeah. a med school in Baltimore. Um, but then... <laughs> Then, uh, but then you returned to the Mecca for pediatrics and pediatric cardiology, which is a pretty intense way to go. How did you do? You know, for someone with these sort of public health interests, I'm not sure the first thing I'd think about would be pediatric yeah. cardiology. Yeah. How did yeah, you decide so, so to do that? Yeah, so it was a little bit of a winding path. So I think you know we have this tendency in retrospect to take our life stories and try to make it into this neat and uh, you know planned. Um, kind of journey. And that, that's really not how it was for me. So even when I was in med school, I ended up, um, I was very interested in global health and the drivers of public health. Again, not really kind of just exploring, but it was its own way of sort of signaling to me where my interests were. So I ended up going to Peru. I did a big tuberculosis epidemiology project there with a group called Prisma at Johns Hopkins. We did work on sister sarcosis control, which is a worm that's a leading cause of seizures in South America. Um, and, uh, and then I even went and did some work in Japan, um, trying to understand the cardiac problems there. Wow. Um, and then, uh, although it's not international, I, I was very interested in rural health. So I spent a fair amount of time in rural Kentucky um, helping write a statewide health survey. So those were kinds of the things that percolated. And then after residency, um, even during that time, that's when I got really interested in how science is interpreted broadly by the public. There was this famous murder trial um, of a British nanny that had killed a baby in the Boston area. I wrote about that for an elective. And then ultimately, between my cardiology fellowship and my residency, I actually moved to the Navajo Reservation and uh, worked on a in a, on, for the for the U.S. Indian Health Service in Gallup, New Mexico, for two years. Right. So even though I kind of was moving toward this subspecialized fellowship, there were all these other inputs. And I think that that's the time to explore and learn. And it is interesting how that truly informed and shaped a lot of my worldview about the kinds of healthcare we could have someday and what I wanted to work on. I just didn't know it at the time. You know, I, I think it's interesting, uh, David, that you say it's not obvious to go into the pediatric side in, in that area. Because I, you know, I, I, when I, and part of this is my recent obsession with reading about Nadine Burke's work on, on adverse childhood events, you know, ACEs and the like. And I'm wondering, Darshak, you know, about your thoughts on this. I, I imagine you must be familiar. 
with her writing and work and how much of the science is important versus the child experience and trauma uh, in terms of the, you know, how, how these diseases progress in children. I mean, obviously some of it's genetic, but a lot of it is also not, I think. I think that's right. And, and by way of example, when, when I was uh, working on the Navajo Reservation, one of the real pleasures of working there was just a group of people and physicians that had lived there for many years are truly dedicated to this population. So for context, Gallup is uh, in uh, New Mexico, and it serves a reservation, which is essentially the size, probably in landmass of West Virginia, although the, the town itself only has 20,000 people. Wow. And the year we moved there, although there were 20,000 um, individuals that were there, a lot of people coming from the reservation on weekends. So every year, there were actually 40,000 DWI arrests in Gallup just to give you a sense of sort of the, some of the challenges. Gosh. And it, Gallup was home to one of the largest, um, essentially, jail cells where people would be, it was essentially a drunk tank. So if you were sort of uh, intoxicated, they put you in there, and then you go home the next day. That was sort of the old approach. And I think that, you know, the ACEs, we talked about the adult child's experiences. You know, there was just endemic problems with child maltreatment on the res. And a lot of it could be traced to that. Mm -hmm. And what we saw year after year, and um, maybe the analogy I like to use is like the Shawshank Redemption, if you saw that movie. You know how the main character, like kind of, you know, it's geological mm -hmm. time. Yeah. You just get a little bit, a little bit out. That's sort of the approach they took there. It's a consistent progress. So they got rid of the drunk tank. They banned liquor sales on weekends. They sort of gradually moved to a more therapeutic standpoint. And you can see year over year over year, there's some slight progress and I think that that adds up over time. So that, that's sort of how, I, again, how that influenced my own development. Um, so after you spent a decade or so at UMass, where you were ultimately chief of pediatric cardiology, and you're going along great, and then you wound up affiliated with the Brookings Institution shortly after that in the Obama administration at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, what, what, what caused that change? What led you there? And wh what about your work was interesting to you? What was the most powerful lesson you learned? So uh, pediatric cardiology is a fascinating field. You know, it's, it's heart, children's heart defects are one of the most common major birth defects and the leading cause of mortality. Yeah. However, even though it's very subspecialized, and this is sort of, although I was doing subspecialized care and even some benchtop research when I was at UMass, one of the things I got fascinated with is that we hadn't really done enough around prevention. It turns out, for example, that folic acid, if you take that prenatally, everybody knows that it sort of prevents spina bifida. What many people don't realize, it also prevents about 50% of major heart defects. And there are many parts of the world where folic acid is not used to, to fortify foods, like the way it is in the U.S. with bread, for example. Similarly, one of the projects I got very interested in was it turns out that many babies in the womb, they're not appropriately screened for heart defects by ultrasound. So as a result, kids would be born, they'd look fine, they'd go home and they'd actually die. So I wrote an article about this when I was writing for the New York Times. And I wrote about pulse oximetry, which is simply checking the oxygen level on babies before they go home. And what happened was there was a woman who read that article whose baby had just been born with a similar condition. And she said, look, you're writing about this. Why don't you do something about it? And this started a two-year collaboration where we worked together. And long story short, over that period of time, actually added pulse oximetry screening to the federal newborn screening program. And now all 50 states require it. So although it was in, this is my way of saying that although I was in pediatric cardiology, experiences like this one and then many others similar to it really 
encouraged me to come back to that original uh, excitement I have about having making change at a broader scale. So with that thinking, although I was very happy um, at UMass, my kids were getting a little bit older, and my wife said, look, I can tell you're getting a little antsy. Why don't you just try something different? So my midlife crisis was essentially getting a call um, and joining the Brookings Institution with uh, Mark McClellan and Alice Rivlin. That's not quite the same as getting a Porsche <laughs> and a new girlfriend, but okay. Yeah, in, in keeping with my limited ability to rebel in yeah, really kind of I think that's why his ways. wife was pushing him yeah. to the Brookings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, but they were looking for somebody who who was a little different. You know, I didn't have a lot of health policy experience formally, but I was a good communicator. You know, I had written the book, and I had, you know, I actually had been a commentator on NPR, and even randomly was on the Today Show. So they kind of wanted somebody who could communicate um, science clearly and effectively. So that's when I spent a year there, did a bunch of projects. Um, and then ended up joining the, the administration because Patrick Conway, who ran the Innovation Center, actually had been my intern when I was a fellow. And they really wanted I didn't somebody. Know that. Yeah, so that's how we got connected. This is the guy that's now North CEO Carolina of North Carolina Blue Cross Blue Shield. Yes, yes, Blue Cross. He, he's a he's just a terrific individual. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really great to work with. Um, and uh, and they said, look, we need somebody to help us develop a population health portfolio. We've never had a permanent director at the Innovation Center. We had this unique opportunity to do something really great. Why don't you come in and help us? So that's how I ended up in that in that role. And what was the most uh, sort of impactful thing that you experienced in that role? Yeah. So one of the great things about health policy, and particularly the Innovation Center, is that we had a lot of funding. You know, the ACA gave $10 billion to the Innovation Center. That's going to reauthorize into 2020. And this really special ability to waive many provisions of traditional Medicare and the way in which we paid for services before. So it was essentially the laboratory for changing health policy that we've always wanted. We always think about, we invest so much time and effort in drug safety and, you know, trials, and we don't do that much in policy. And this was really the, the first time this had happened in the U.S. So that was really extraordinary. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to use that authority to better invest in long-term prevention. And the, the problem we chose to work on is that whenever you invest in prevention, the payoff for those things may be far in the future. So as a result, we kind of, they focused a lot on surrogate endpoints, like, hey, just get the cholesterol down or, you know, these, get the blood pressure to this amount. They, they didn't meaningfully look at long-term outcomes. So what we did, one example, is we created a predictive analytic model where it's called the million hearts model. It's the first one we produced. It was the first of many where we created a composite risk score of heart attack and we incentivized a reduction in risk score. So we assigned a dollar value to a future probability. And the way somebody got there it didn't really matter how they got there. If they wanted to stop smoking, that was fine. If they wanted to focus on blood pressure, that was fine. If they wanted to take it, you know. But ultimately then it would incentivize that kind of shared decision-making by focusing on a future endpoint. So that was one example of the ways in which we tried to reframe the economics and the, the case for long-term prevention. So, Darshak, I saw you recently give a talk at NCQA talk, Quality Talks about why Healthcare and reality TV are similar, which kind of is a bit of a riff on this topic. Yes. Can, you, can you give the thesis of that talk? 
to our viewers. Because we'll, it's directly we'll link, related. Yeah, yeah. It's directly yeah. related. And we'll, and we'll put a link on the podcast yeah. blog page about of your talk, which I know is out on YouTube. Thanks. Yeah, so so with reality TV, uh, and this is the, the I think what, uh, Lisa, you and I were both on the same stage a couple of weeks ago. Um, the, the idea was, you know, if you look at a show like American Idol, or even The Bachelor, you know, millions of people vote or, you know, you have this really complicated process that if you're you're really compatible. And yet most of those people don't go on to become talented recording artists that are world famous or, you know, The Bachelor have long-term stable marriages. And the reason (laughs) is you you think, well, hey, you know, there's actually an analogy to healthcare here, which is we think we're incentivizing through all our pay-for-performance schemes and all that stuff exactly the kind of stuff that should lead to long-term health, just like we think we're going to identify a talented recording artist. But, of course, they suffer from the same fatal flaw, which is that the actual thing you incentivize is different than the thing you care about in the long term. So in the case of reality TV, it's obviously Mm -hmm. viewers and ad dollars, you know, so that's why you create all this artificial drama, which is, you know, not so... Um, uh, helpful when you're trying to develop an intimate relationship, or in the case of healthcare, you really incentivize an intermediate or surrogate endpoint. For example, um, in ADHD, you know what you want long term is you want a child who is going to grow up into a productive and and uh, you, you know really kind member of society who's able to maintain good relationships. But what you actually incentivize is a reduction in like a, a score or a scale. You know, three months later, taken by the teacher and the parents. And that may or may not really be related. Yeah. So that was sort of one of the problems that we saw in how we had looked at prevention long term. And it's that problem we chose to address through the Innovation Center. And then ultimately, to be honest, even the kind of work I now do at Optum Labs. Just, cool. just to take, I, I can't wait to hear about the Optum stuff. I want just to finish this thread, um, the, you know, the idea of, you know, of, how well-intentioned, um, you know, the idea of trying to measure things to improve them, which has so much traction. At the beginning of the show, Lisa and I, as you know, we're talking about different books. And I mentioned this book, Tyranny of Metrics, where they really talk about essentially the abuse of metrics in well-intentioned efforts in medicine in general and in quality in, in particular. Um, and they even talk about how one of the great quality gurus, Dan Berwick, right, is now, like, has been writing about how it's been, it's gone over the top. Um, have you seen his sort of commentaries on that? And do you sort of, it sounds like you share that sentiment. Uh, yeah, I do, because I think that what's happened is that when you start to tie payments, in particular to certain metrics, those metrics better be really, really good because a huge amount of effort is going to be focused right at moving those metrics. And that may not be the behavior you really want to see. I mean, let me give one example of how we're, we're trying to address that now. So we know that babies, um, when they're born today, because of the opioid crisis, there's a substantial amount of, of uh, there are many mothers who have um, uh, opioid use disorder, and as a result, their babies are born with physical dependence on opioids. It's very expensive because they have to stay in the NICU. And so you can look at a metric. So maybe the metric that somebody focuses on is the number of babies born with opioid use disorder. You know, that sounds like a good one, right? Because you want to have fewer babies born. It turns out that many states or others had looked at those kinds of rates. But think about how you actually have a baby born who doesn't have opioid use disorder. That means that the mom has to not be on opioids. And how do you get a mom off opioids? You put her in detox. It turns out that detox, particularly for mothers that are opioid dependent, is really not good because immediately after that, it doesn't, their cravings don't go away and they actually relapse really quickly afterwards. 
What you want to do is to get them into treatment with medication-assisted treatment, like, for example, buprenorphine or methadone, because the outcomes are so much better. But here's the problem. When moms are on that, the babies are exposed to it too, and of course the babies are born with opioid dependence. But that's actually a really good thing because the moms are healthy, you know, and so you got to measure the right thing. So we found this, and, you know, uh, we're not the first, the Ohio Collaboratives, uh, Massachusetts, Tennessee, and others saw that. But one of the things I've been working on, this is on my mind just because the past few weeks, is how do we move that? You know, do we just incentivize a reduction like that? Or is there something under that, which is a much more complex series of things we want to have happen at the state level? So in that situation, rather than focusing on a single metric like that, our organization working for in the state of Tennessee, we're actually making a large investment in a broad-based statewide collaborative. And the idea is, let's just bring people together. They can figure out how to share practices, and we're actually not going to worry about one or two single measures. The thing we care about is people getting together and sharing best practices and working together to make care better for everybody. Let's incentivize that and not actually worry about the measures. So that's one concrete way we've tried to address. That sounds like kind of such like a next generation way of approaching this because, um, you know, it's it's so easy to see how, just like you're describing some of these process metrics or the things that you're sort of trying to there's such a desire to quantify things that they wind up being the wrong things. The other problem that I think is is not just, you know, sort of measuring the wrong things, but even measuring sort of the right things in isolation. There's a great um, uh, sort of incidental economist piece by um, – you know, by Bill Gardner, where he talked about checklist burden and how mm-hmm. the idea is essentially it's like a little bit of a zero-sum game and how even if measuring one thing in isolation is actually helpful or, or make sure everyone you ask about seatbelts or you ask about A or you ask about B. Right. But you can't have people ask about every single thing, right. even if every single thing in isolation, if you ask about seatbelts, you improve seatbelts. You know, you know, right. you ask about this, but at the end of the day, if people have 15 minutes, something has got to give. Yep. So yep. Is, is that something else that you contemplate as well? Yeah. I mean, in, in a sense, this comes back to the conversation we started, which is about adverse childhood experiences, because mm-hmm. you can ask about those, um, but you're never going to really fully capture the full sort of spectrum of what's going on in the household. So I think what what we've learned is that, at least we meaning um, in the work that we did at CMMI and now at, at Optum Labs, is let's pick a few measures, but those measures, we think about them as the tip of the iceberg. So it's not the be all and end all, but they'll give a sense of directionally, are the investments we're making and the strategies we're using working or not? And, you know, if they move in the right direction, that validates the broader strategy. If they don't, that doesn't mean we need to come, kind of change everything. It just means we need to dig a little bit deeper. This is different than sort of the conventional way measures are created, which is you wait for measures, like they're endorsed by NQF, takes three years, and they're rolled out, and they're sort of high stakes, they're publicly reported. I'm not so sure that's the way to get quality improvement, but rather to push it down for local control and allow that kind of lean flexibility to kind of change measures and really kind of adapt to the data you're getting more quickly. That's sort of the world I want to see. Should patients be allowed to define their measures? Yeah. I I mean, it really depends on the problem we're talking about because I think that absolutely patients should have some input because the things that they care about may be, there may be huge blind spots for clinicians. I think, though, that, that um, 
any kind of measures process has to be collaborative. So I wouldn't necessarily give it all to the clinicians or all to the patients, but there should be some collaborative model where they come together. So not just shared decision-making, but shared measurement. Right. Right. I mean, shared decision-making has turned into like, a, you know, years ago, Wally Gilbert, when he founded Biogen in the 80s, somebody said to him, you know, he, he yeah. the big product at the time, the recombinant product was interferon. And one of, the, one of the analysts asked him publicly, hey, can you tell us what is interferon? And he looks... And he says, it's a substance I rub on stockbrokers. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning that like, it's sort of like this universal thing you just say and everybody gets excited. And I feel like shared decision-making and those, it's become this buzzword. The thing is, well, let's talk, what does shared decision-making actually really look like in clinic? What is that, what, what is that process actually, you know, who's actually mastered it in the wild? Let's scale that. We're just not. I have I have seen very few examples of that actually happening. Well, so um, so Josh, like there were two more topics. So um, and I know we're low on time, but just even if we could do it briefly, um, we you know after your CMMI experience and like you're saying, you're doing all this exciting stuff at Optum. I was surprised when I when you were sort of you know at Optum Labs when I heard about it. I thought, wow, it was a what a great brilliant get for them. But I'm not sure that I expected it. So how did you wind up going there, and what's just sort of at a high level? briefly, are, is your number one focus. Yeah. So the reason I went there is that apart from the United States government, probably United Health Group, so as, as many of your listeners probably know, Optum and United Healthcare together make up United Health Group, is probably the largest purchaser of healthcare services in, in the country, um, and, and it's now international. So what, what attracted me there was this idea that I wanted to have impact at scale. And what became pretty clear is that even at large payer organizations where you have lots and lots of very smart people, my sense is that we don't always use data to make to the best extent possible to make the best decisions to serve uh, patients that, that are out there. So my thinking was if we had access to this massive data set, lots and lots of analysts, and a sensibility that kind of knew how to ask the right questions, but then also work the politics and internal organization, that in some way we could kind of move this aircraft carrier of United Health Group and, and broader payers towards better health. So that was sort of the, the thinking that brought me there. Um, and the area I've spent a lot of time on over the past, there's, there's several of them. We have these things called integrated programs. But since I was talking about the neonatal abstinence syndrome, I'll say that we've focused a huge amount on the opioid crisis. Um, so that we've, we've looked at, we've developed a massive framework to quantitate it um, in prevention, in pain management, in pediatric use and in treatment of opioid use disorder, we probably have about 15 projects that are going at national scale on various aspects of the problem. And most importantly, we've now altered everything from benefit design to state policy to even CMS metrics using sort of the framework and the work we've done there. And that's benefited not just members for United Health Group, but, but the country as a whole. At least in my most optimistic days, that's what I tell myself. <laughs> so what's your, deli- but what's like the delivery of Optum Labs? I mean, is, are there like, I mean, they're, they're, they do analysis, they're consultants, but they're also obviously connected with United. They, they sort of seem to be playing multiple different roles in the ecosystem. Yep. What's, their, what's the sort of the primary, their, their, their primary, yeah. how do they make money? What's their actual, <laughs> you know, business? So, so a good, good question. So, um, so 
we are actually a cost center. We're one of the few parts of all of Optum. We do not have a profit target. So we get in, we're very lucky in that we get investments in staffing, and our goal is to just create good information, and we publish it in the peer-reviewed literature. So it's kind of like our, we're almost like a, a public-facing sort of area that does good for the, for the country. And then the way we move that back is I spend a lot of my time you know, the thing about it is that you can publish, and many scientists know this, you publish the greatest papers, New England Journal, JAMA, others, and by and large, that data often just sits out there without making the system better. In my view, the skill that's needed are people that actually build relationships with policymakers, owners of big lines of business, entrepreneurs and others, over drinks, you know, it takes years to get here, and then you kind of dribble that in. Like, hey, did you know, for example, that medication-assisted treatment saves 50%, you know, has 50% lower mortality than, say, detox? Maybe we should think about that in terms of benefit design. And then you sort of work with that. Or you say, well, you know, maybe prior authorization for certain types of long-acting opiates for chronic patients. I know that sounds good. Look at this data. It actually kind of, you know, we could serve patients better. And that takes weeks, but then that's how you get in the room. So, I think that that's where the the big piece of what we do is not only the research, we spend a huge amount of our time socializing the data in ways that makes it more actionable. Yeah, so you sound like sort of like a data influencer. Right, right. Um, so, okay, so last, last question. I run, appropriately enough, we run over a bit, but that's cool. Um, so, um, Darshak, you are among the busiest people I know. So I'm going to ask you a question that I heard Dan Diamond ask another one of the busiest people I know, Scott Gottlieb, and it seems really relevant here as well. What are your thoughts on work-life balance? Yeah, so I think that... I don't know. I don't have time to think about that. So yeah, <laughs> um, here's, here's what I'd say. I, I have two kids. Um, I have two sons. They're 17 and 14, so junior and, and fresh, freshman in high school. Um, I'm married. I live in Brooklyn, and I travel a good amount now. I'd say for me, work-life balance means the lesson I've taken away is that I don't measure productivity in terms of hours spent, but in effectiveness. And what I've just learned to do is to be far more efficient and focused on the times I'm actually at the office so that I can decompress after I'm home. But I'll be honest, like many others, I struggle with that. I have not figured this out. So if, uh, if Scott Gottlieb and others have the secrets, I, I guess I should tune into those episodes to see what they can yeah, it was sort of the, I mean, it was kind of the opposite with Scott. It was a little bit arresting, actually, because, you know, it was this fantastic interview, of course, that Dan did. And at the end, it was like, what about work life? And basically, the guy, you know, he's, he's like, you know, I know that, you know, you live in Connecticut, and you're working in D.C. five days a week. And he goes, actually, he works six days a week. He goes, you know, when you take one of these jobs, it's 24-7 and 365, more or less. And it doesn't sound like actually he has any life outside of work, um, which is imaginable. I mean, you know, between his actual job and Scott's Twitter, <laughs> Twitter activity, I don't see how he yeah. has time for anything. Um, but, but no, but, but on the other hand, I mean, but like, you know, just you, you seem at, you know, comparably well, busy. I, I, I would say that, um, that uh, probably for me, the key was I, my spouse picks up a fair amount of the slack that I leave. So I'm truly grateful for that, even though she, you know, she runs a law firm that focuses on Me Too issues and employs a bunch of people. Um, and also the other thing for me is that, honestly speaking, I waited till my kids were a little older before I got into this world. 
so they still needed me, but um, I made the decision to to be home when they were when they were much younger. They still needed you, but they didn't want you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is pretty much the story of my life now. Like today, I want to hang out with them, and they're like, um, yeah, we'll not so much, later. huh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to talk to you, Darshak. I um, yeah. we'll make sure we post your presentation from NCQA and um, look forward to crossing paths again soon. Great, such Thank- a pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Darshak. All right. Well, that was so. He is so articulate. Yeah, isn't he's he? a fun person to talk to, and uh, really just a bundle of energy. Really, it is. And I, you know, I think actually, you know, we, we didn't really quite get into his book, but um, you know, he's a beautiful writer. You know, like you were saying, he did write for the Times, and you know, the, his ability to, I think, communicate clearly and to sort of summarize. It is interesting how much of the challenge that he's describing, he's fundamentally focused on, is implementation, right? His point of view seemed to be that there's a lot of, you know, we don't have all the answers, but even when there are some promising, there is promising science, that's not really necessarily being driven into action, being driven into policy, and maybe have someone someone like Darshak, who's deeply grounded in the science and in the policy, and is such a wonderful communicator, he might be just the right person for that role. I also think that whole discussion of the tyranny of measurement is so fascinating um, since we all struggle to measure outcome in healthcare in particular. And, you know, that's the only way we as humans can figure out how to do it, right, is to come up with measures that are concrete and, and quantitative. And it's so not right in some ways. And in well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what this tyranny of metrics book really, yeah. uh, really gets into. I'll, I'll make sure you wind up with that book. Excellent. I would love to have that. Well, you can follow David's writing at Forbes. That's right. Um, Please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment and help others discover the show. Also, you can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, RockPoint. RockPoint, innovators in medical education and patient engagement. To learn more, go to RockPoint, with an E at the end, dot com. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonics Studio B in ultra-hazy Mill Valley, California. Ciao. Ciao.